a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Ironlead Cartel. For all your fitness and streetwear apparel and health supplements. Hosted by Australian veterans, Matt and Shane, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high-charging people with the Zero Limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. Today on Zero Limits podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, Shane's away, so I'm going to be running Jason Drulo solo, having a chat with uh, an MP, a military policeman from the United States. As uh, some of our listeners might know, MPs here in Australia are a different breed and not very well liked. And I've had a couple of run-ins during my service with the MPs and I don't like them. But uh, we're going to have a chat with Sean. I've read into his story and their MPs sound totally different. I've started reading his book, uh, The Ghost of the Valley, and he essentially talks about how MPs were re-rolled into infantry, uh, you know, when deployed in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So let's get into it and find out, you know, the real uh, side of the MPs. Sean and Breeze. All right. On today's uh, Zero Limits podcast, we have a military policeman from the US. You know, done a bit of listening on, um, you know, today's guest is Sean Ambrose, but uh, I've, I've been doing a bit of listening on a few podcasts he's been on and started reading his book. And I've come to the conclusion that the MPs in the US, are, it's, it's a total different ball game. Um, they go from, you know, obviously doing the general garrison, you know, police duty to fighting wars, essentially like the infantry, which is Absolutely incredible. So let's get him on. Sean and Breeze, how are you, mate? Good, good, very good. Thank you for having me on. No, I appreciate your time, mate. Again, you know, um, you know, we were reaching out to a few people and um, we wanted an MP on. But again, if we were to get an MP on in Australia, they've got no stories. They're literally boring. They're, they're literally traffic cops. So we dug a little bit deeper and obviously found your story, and especially we found, you know, first we found your book, you know, read up a bit on, on it and, uh, you know, watched some YouTube about it. You guys go from, you know, doing, again, the general MP work to fighting wars in Afghanistan, you know, and, and it goes back to Iraq, Vietnam, and, you know, you know, prior, which is incredible. Just for the listeners to start off with, let's just start off, you know, you as a kid, where'd you grow up? Uh, originally from Los Angeles, California. Yep. 
spent most of my childhood. I loved it. I loved the Cali life, Cali vibes, um, beach, and just hanging out with your friends and family and barbecues and beautiful weather. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I had a, I had a pretty good childhood. I can't complain. Yeah. Gotcha. So whereabouts in LA? Was it, uh, you know, one of those rough, rough areas or? Uh, now, L- L.A. is weird, you know, because, you know, look at L.A. County and there's so many different cities within L.A. itself. Yeah. Um, I was about 20 minutes south of downtown L.A. Um, in like the Redondo Beach, Torrance area. Yeah. But it's like if you go te- a 10 minute drive inland from where I was, you're in Compton, you know, and everyone yeah. knows Compton. Yeah. Uh, or your South Central L.A. is just 15 minutes north of my house. It's like you cross these these thresholds into these different cities that it's it's very different. So one city is very nice. And then, yeah, then you get like the famous gang related cities. So yeah, right. You, you know, you know, we're not to go and what colors not to wear. Yeah. Yeah. So your parents uh, growing up, what, what were they doing as a living? Um, they both worked at uh, actually both my parents, my stepdad, uh, they all worked at Northrop Grumman used to be TRW. Uh, it's a space technology weapon system. Yeah, right. They, they, they deal with a kind of like Boeing. They deal with the military a lot. Um, so they all worked uh, for the satellite company. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, you, you didn't have the military background like throughout your family. No, my grandpa, he served in Korea. He was probably the only one that served in the military. I think he's the only one that served in the military. And my uncle was a Redlands SWAT officer. Um, uh, but other than that, my cousin, he's a firefighter, but other than that, I don't know one that I remember or know served in the Mary. You know, how, how did you go through school? Were you academic or, you know, obviously it sounds like your dad was quite academic, uh, you know, academic. So uh, my stepdad's really smart. My mom's smart. Um, I think my dad's kind of like me, didn't like school. Not that we were like dumb, but probably C average <laughs> students at best. Yeah. Just, I just couldn't stand school. got bored. Yeah. I'm um, the same. I was the same. Yeah. So I was not very academically achieved. Yeah. Right. So what, what led to uh, joining the military? Um, I think I always kind of wanted to join. Uh, I always had an interest in joining. I grew up watching Saving Private Ryan and <laughs> Playing, playing soldier in the backyard yeah, yeah. with my cousins and stuff like that, you know. Um, and uh, w- w- I think what really pushed me over the edge to, to finally do it was my ex girlfriend, my high school sweetheart. She she was a year ahead of me, and um, and uh, and and so she already had like her five year plan set up, you know. She yeah, was going for thirteen, <laughs> and she's like, "What is your five year plan?" Because I graduated high school and I was just hanging out at the house. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yeah, and uh, I was like, "Oh, the army's handing out five year plans." So yeah, right. I surprised her and, and joined, and then she broke up with me. So <laughs> probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I know it was. It was. <laughs> Wait, you know, for myself, what year was this when you joined? Did I, I join? Uh, I signed the contract Valentine's Day, naturally, yeah. <laughs> uh, February fourteenth, two thousand eight. Yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah, right. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So, um, you know. For myself, I joined because of nine uh, eleven, uh, you know, early two thousands, and mm-hmm. you know, I guess how old were you when nine eleven happened? I think I was like fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, right. Maybe? Do you do you remember it? Yeah, I I, I didn't understand it. I yeah, didn't of course. Yeah, picture. Yeah, my dad woke me up, told me to turn the news on. It was like six thirty in the morning. Um, you know, our time on the West Coast, and uh, he was freaking out. I'd never seen him like that before. Yeah. Um, and he just, I just kept seeing the planes run into the, I was like, I don't understand. Like, okay. So there was an accident. Like what the fuck is the big deal? You know, yeah. like, just did not comprehend with the overall bigger. I didn't even know what terrorism was, yeah. you know, it just, it wasn't a thought to me at 14 years no, old. Of course. Yeah, no, exactly. And you know, you look at it now, I suppose you look back and you go, that was the reason why, you know, you did mm-hmm. your time in Afghanistan. Which yeah. Is, ultimately. Yeah. Years yeah, later. It's that, crazy, that, isn't that, it? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, my my next question is, you know, what led you to become an MP? You know, again, 
here in Australia, if you were to join an MP, you do, it's you know it's it's similar to the you know the the state police or the federal police. You know, no one likes them. Yeah. And you know, uh, and military police, no one likes them extra. Yeah, I mean, so policing in general, especially here in America, as you know, we have our problems. Yeah. Um, with civilian police law enforcement, the past what five six years has been really really bad. Now over here, you know, when I joined thirteen years ago, it wasn't. I mean, it's always been an issue, but it's. I don't know. I, I guess. I guess when you're 18 years old, you don't see or know these things. Yeah. Um, like, like I, knew, like I knew in, in in LA. Like, you don't fuck with LAPD. I know people <laughs> don't fuck with them. I, I got that. But I guess I just wanted to do like join for do five years, a five year contract, uh, kind of get some experience under my belt, and I wanted to come back to LA um, and work LAPD, maybe SWAT or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I never had intentions on staying in as a lifer. So I, I guess I just wanted to join for that experience. I didn't know at the time uh, how much the MP Corps, I, w- I, w- I shouldn't say not give me experience, but it, you know, any, you could be a cook and then get out and go be a cop. Yeah, of course. It's, it's not that you won't be successful. Um, but I also haven't had much law enforcement experience since I have been in. I've, I've never wrote a ticket. Um, I've never <laughs> pulled anyone over. You sound uh, like I, I just got cops. pulled over like two months ago. Yeah, yeah so right. I, <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, uh, but ultimately that all changed when the war kicked off. So. Yeah. So let's just run into, you know, the training side of things for the MPs as you know, again, you know, what I've read up on, you know, you do the general stuff, but then you get into the more of the war fighting, which is, you know, you know, most other MPs around the world don't get into that side of, you know, carrying around, you know, machine guns and that type of, you know, scenario. So yeah, if we could start from, you know, your enlistment through to training and then, yeah, we'll get onto your deployments. I mean, as far as the MPs, uh, you got to look at the history, the history of it, you know, it used to be just a bunch of dudes on horseback that guarded George Washington's rear and yeah. watched the flanks and, uh, and they policed up the troops, um, for George Washington. And then, and then you, you kind of flash forward into like say World War One and World War you know World War Two. We found ourselves in the Higgins boats landing on Normandy in Vietnam. We found ourselves in the jungle surrounded. Um, and then you know Iraq and Afghanistan. You know now there is no definitive front line. You leave the wire and you're essentially surrounded by enemy at all times. Yeah. And anyone susceptible to getting uh, taken into contact um, at that point. Yeah. And so. Um, yeah, so we saw the MP Corps saw its capabilities change as the years went on, and and we found ourselves from the rear going towards the front more, and we're more of like a combat support element. Um, I talked to a buddy Rocco; he's an ex ranger, um, special operations, and we were comparing an infantry platoon to a um, to a MP squad. So a squad for us is twelve to sixteen dudes. Yep. Uh, an infantry platoon of us, or excuse me, an infantry or a uh, MP platoon of us is forty something, right? I'm not quite sure on infantry. I w- I want to say depending on if they're like a light infantry, they're obviously not as big. Yeah. Um, but one of our squads as an MP carries more arsenal than an infantry platoon. Yeah, right. Um, and he was surprised by that because he was telling me like what he would carry as an infantry guy, as a ranger. And I told him what we had and he was like, bro, what the fuck? It doesn't make any sense. Like, and we're very self-sustainable. We could leave the wire 12, 16 of us, four gun trucks. Um, and we have every piece of weaponry you can imagine. So just for like my second deployment as a Sergeant, for example, my driver had his M4 rifle, M9 pistol. <laughs> I had my, um, three, uh, 203 grenade launcher, my rifle, my pistol, my M14 sniper, EBR, uh, EBR sniper rifle. Um, my, Assistant gunner had uh, two four nine 
M9 pistol and my gunner um, would have his uh, M4 240 uh, you know, machine gun, his Mark 19 grenade launcher, and then he'd have three additional AT4 uh, rocket launchers. And then we had an entire uh, incinerate boombox of Syrian grenades, regular grenades, two or three grenades, flashbangs, uh, anything that goes boom goes in this box. And then he had an additional wrong. thousand rounds of linked grenades that we would carry compact in our truck. That's just my truck. Yeah. And then you figure you have all the other three trucks. So like, um, yeah, we, we pack a huge punch wherever we go because, you know, yes, the infantry, they take the, br- the brunt force of it all, but we have to either show up sometimes and help or we kind of fill those gaps. Um, and like I said, to just be self-sustaining so we can survive on our own out there. So. Yeah, that's that's interesting because, as you know, as I said, we're here within Australia, <laughs> mate, our MPs, they'll be lucky, lucky to leave the wire, if you know what I mean. They, they, oh, yeah. they just don't. It's never happened um, unless there's, you know, obviously been some infantry guy that's messed up out in the field somewhere. But um, yeah. in regards to the MP course, how long is it? Um, basic training was nine weeks, and then I want to say another nine, I think. Yeah. I think another nine weeks of advanced training. Yep. Something like that. It's like 16 total weeks maybe or something like that from basic through AIT. Yeah, gotcha. Um, this is about, I, I want to say, <clears throat> I want to say it's about six months actually. But when I went through, it was a five-month Four, four months. Yeah. I, I went through a special program um, in 2008. Prior to the surge, there was a, a huge call for troops because they knew the surge to Afghanistan was coming. Yeah. So when I got the basic, um, I got attached to one drill sergeant and uh, 12 of us uh, out of our entire co- out of 200 something privates, uh, 12 of us got selected and we woke up every day and we would go see that one drill sergeant. And then yeah. she would take us from training event to training event and we would front load. So like there would be a company we don't even know at the range. We would just walk in front of them, give them, giving it your ammo. And then we take their ammo. We'd go shoot, get off the line. We go to the next training event. We just did this every day. We just pushed forward in front of every line of every training event. And we graduated about a month and a half sooner yeah, right. than what we would have. Yep. So we could get to our units so we could deploy. Wow. That's uh yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. But, um, you know, once you finish your MP training, uh, where, where did you get uh, posted? Uh, I went to Fort Carson first, Fort Carson, Colorado. Oh, yeah. Colorado Springs, about an hour south of Denver. Yep. Yeah, nice. And uh, how long were you there for before you started to, you know, we'll get into the deployment completely afterwards, but how long? Um, I was there for, so I got there 4th of July weekend of 2008. Yep. Um, and we were scheduled for... Iraq of August of 2009. Yeah, right. So like a year and some change, I knew Iraq was coming up. Um, And from July to February 09, right? So just under a year. um, February, I got promoted to PFC. And that's the day I got promoted to PFC. I remember my commander walking out and telling us that our orders to Iraq had been canceled. Yeah, right. We were going, um, we were going to Afghanistan as part of the surge in, uh, in April. Yeah. So we had about a month and some change to get our shit ready and we had to get, get to Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. So what, what was your pre-deployment like? Is that, a- um, well, we had been training for Iraq, which as you know, is a lot of open desert, yeah. I mean, depending on where you are, a lot of urban, um, Afghanistan, uh, <clears throat> is either urban or mountainous Yeah. and we didn't know where we were going to go. And so, um, once we got the word of the surge, Fort Carson canceled a lot of ranges for people. We got front loaded to qualify on all of our weapons, get out to all the ranges. We lived out there for about two weeks, um, just preparing. And we didn't really know what we were preparing for. We, 
we got the biggest uh, training area uh, Fort Carson has yeah. where it has like a, a miniature city with buildings so we could practice urban. Yeah. And then at night or in late day, we would practice hiking up the mountains because um, Fort Carson is, is, is the mountain post. And yeah. so uh, that was the one advantage we had. Um, unlike other places, other guys who deploy out of like, say, Bragg or, or Campbell or something like that um, is we had the elevation on our side and we practiced in preparation for the Afghanistan mountains that we could be facing. And so we would hike up and down these damn mountains all day, <laughs> um, just kind of conditioning our legs. And our platoon had the most combat veterans and I guess the best synchronized platoon. So when it came time to, uh, you know, figure out who was going to go where in the country, because they were yeah. going to split us up. Um, we got tagged for the Kunar province. Yeah, right. So when you say, you know, a lot of your platoon were combat veterans, uh, was that Iraq, was it? Yeah, most of them are Iraq. I think I think of all of our combat veterans in our platoon, which is probably maybe a dozen dudes, um, maybe two or three, maybe two or three had ever been to Afghanistan. Yeah, right. So it was very new for all of us, but at least we had somebody who knew how to react when the bullets started flying. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, Exactly right, mate. Like you, you know, you go to Afghanistan. You know, when I went, it was everyone. It was their first time, so no one knew what to expect. But you know, I guess with having people that have been to Iraq, it just yeah. gave you that boost to know that you know they knew what to do if uh, shit yeah. went south, which I'm sure shit did go south plenty of times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the Kunar, definitely comforting. Yeah. So the Kunar province. Can you explain exactly where that is? Yeah, the uh, RCE, so the, the Regional East Command, it's the northeastern part of uh, of Afghanistan, and it's in the Hindu Kush Mountains, which yeah. translates to Hindu killer. Yeah. Uh, the most fighting in the world, honestly, has, has happened there. You look at the Russians who got their asses kicked in the 80s, and yeah. the British, and David and Goliath fought there, and the, the place just knows war, and... Uh, I think what, 11 or 12 Medal of Honors have been earned yeah, right. uh, in, in just those mountain ranges themselves. Uh, so it's a very dangerous place. 70% of all the ordnance that's dropped in Afghanistan is dropped in, in those valleys. Um, so if you just picture every single bomb, every mortar, every piece of artillery that's ever been shot in Afghanistan, 70% just fall in those mountains in, itself. Yeah, right. That's wow. So, that's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, very kinetic area. Very yeah, kinetic. I spent uh, most of my time in the Uzgan province, so it's just west of uh, the Kunar province. Okay. Which, um, yeah, so it's a, another crazy place. But um, yeah, yeah. let's get into this deployment. Uh, what what year did you deploy? Uh, 2009, 2010. To, and how long was that deployment? 12 months. 12 months. See, that's that's incredible. Here in Australia, mate, like our maximum deployments are generally six to seven months. Like it's anything above that. And it's funny because, you know, we spoke to a lot of U.S. soldiers overseas and work with them, and they're like, oh, it's been 14 months since I've been home. I'm like, mate, that's crazy. And the money's pretty – it's not that good for the U.S. guys too. Uh, I mean, when you're that age though – Yeah, I suppose, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and then and then you're not, you're not spending it for a year, so when yeah. you get back, you have $35,000 waiting for you. <laughs> they're buying cars and, yeah, mate, we yeah, – yeah. yeah, then we just blow it, but – um. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just this area, man. Um, but I think Marines, the, the Marines do. Oh yeah, you were talking about months. I think the Marines do our, our Marines. Yep. But we were the we were the last group. Uh, we were one of the last groups to do twelve months on my second deployment. Yep. And the guys we replaced, they did a fifteen. Months. Yeah, they right. were there for <laughs> forever. That's a long time. So they let's looked get fucked up. You, yeah, it's funny how you know that that sort of time in a place like that can just completely transform a human being. Oh yeah. 
You know, you look at I, photos. I remember seeing those guys. The, the guys we were replacing, I came in my fresh uniform. Yeah. And I remember looking at them, and they just – they look like death. It, they they just, yeah, mate. You honestly look like there's no soul. Like there's just no yeah. soul. I was uh, I was a hundred and about 105 kilos when I went to Afghanistan, and I come back 90 kilos. I look like a dead set. You know, I look like ET. It was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> but um, let's get into your deployment. Um, so you deployed to Afghanistan, and you, what were you expecting? Honestly, I didn't know. Um, I knew Iraq. Our drill sergeants all talked about Iraq a lot. And I used to always watch the live leak videos and, yeah. <laughs> and, and try to like get an idea of what combat would look like. Yeah. Um, and so you play it out in your head and you have like these, uh, what's like the, just like this movie cinematic. Yeah. Yeah. If, if this happens. This is how I'm going to react. And you tell yourself and, um, and then it's nothing like that, but, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, <laughs> I think that was the good thing. Um, and, and I was lucky that I had the, the NCOs that I did so that when things kicked off, I just kind of reacted based yep. off my training. Yep. And I just, I was going to follow their cue because I had no idea. Yeah. So if you could just run our listeners through uh, your role, you know, obviously again, going back to being an MP, you know, what we think, yeah. you know, you'd be stuck inside the FOB and that's about it. But, you know, obviously yeah. you guys we re-rolled and straight out into the thick of it. Yeah. So in 2009, um, we were still trying to shape, the Kunar province. Uh, we had to work very heavily with the elders and a lot of these little villages. We had to work heavily with the Afghan army and the Afghan police um, on getting them trained up so that they could take over their country. And 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 so that was our, our role for the most part was to train the police, um, do assessments with the police, joint patrols with them, <clears throat> support the infantry on major operations, yep. depending on what that was. Um, but yeah, when I got to Afghanistan, um, prior to deployment, they sent me to EMT school. Yeah. So when I got to Afghanistan, they, they made me a medic. Yeah. Gotcha. And, I, and so I, I, I don't have any medical background in my life yeah. prior to it. Like, you know, they sent me to like a month long school and that was about it. I never thought that I would actually be performing life-saving measures on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, but I found myself drive being a driver MP as a private driving around in the trucks from location to location. And then I would get out and dismount and go be the medic. And I would go treat the Afghan police officers, or I would be the medic on ground. And then when we got off of mission, I'd go work in the aid station. And we were a role too, which meant that most of the casualties in all of RC East, the whole Northeastern part of the country would come to us. So we could package them up and send them to yeah, Bagram. Right. So we were seeing mass casualties almost every day. Yeah, right. And that's obviously not just uh, Afghans <laughs> and you know US soldiers as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. So a lot of civilians, a lot of everything. So that whole deployment, you were essentially the combat first aider for, you know, not only your platoon, but the infantry as well. Yep. Yeah. I worked on a total of uh, 116 casualties. Wow. So your experience went from one month of training to you're a seasoned paramedic now, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially. (laughs) That's crazy. So, um, so when you're at, uh, you know, um, patrolling around and, attached the inventory, you know, how long did it take before you got into your first, you know, stink? Um, well, when I was initially, uh, okay. So we, you know, we got to Afghanistan, we went from Bagram to Fob Blessing. Fob Blessing, um, was just outside the Korngal, which is like the famous, yeah, uh, yep. you've seen the movie, the lone survivor. Yeah, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Korngal, yeah. Yeah. So that's where I was for the first like two weeks. And then they decided that there was more police stations up North and they were going to split the platoon up even more. So we already got separated from our, I didn't see my company commander for like a year. He'd occasionally come see us, but there were guys in my company I deployed with. I didn't see till we got back home. Yeah, right. Um, and so when we went as a platoon, 
three squads. Two squads stayed at Blessing. One squad went up north to fought Bostick, and that's where I worked in the aid station is at Bostick. And I was at Bostick for maybe five months, and then I went back to the Blessing guys. Yeah. Um, and and that's where I was worked as a medic the most and stuff like that. But when I was up there, we were attached to a cavalry unit. I don't know if you've seen the movie that just came out on Netflix uh, called The Outpost. Yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah, definitely. So that, that was my unit, 361 Cav. I no was way. six miles south of Cop Keating when it got overran. Wow. My buddy Mace, Mace was the uh, Mace was the last one to die in the movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was the one that, uh, he, was, he was he was like that smart-ass one that yeah, no, called yeah. a fat troll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. funny. He was, he was a funny dude. But yeah, so um, we were six miles south of, of Cop Keating when I actually got overran. Yeah, right. And I actually heard the radio communications, and that was by far the scariest give, give me chills to this day thinking about yeah hearing the radio comms of the enemy was in the wire. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, insane. mate, that story, like I've read, you know, a bit about it and obviously watched the movie as well. And in, like, just what do you yeah. do? Like, what do you do? It's, yeah. it's one of those things, you know, as you talk about before, you know, you, before you went to Afghanistan, you started talking about, on oh, this is what I'll do. This is what I'll do. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. You couldn't plan for that. It, yeah, it's not exactly. expected. So but um, yeah, crazy. So um, yeah, going back to your first, uh, you know, initial contact with you know the Taliban. The very first one, um, my very very first contact wasn't wasn't the biggest battle I've been in. It was we were kind of sitting ducks. So it was uh, it was in September. Um, you know, for the most part, when uh, when the deployment started, it was pretty quiet at first. I, we just it's always seemed to miss the the contact. Um, for the first couple months for us. And then, and then it started and, and yeah. then it didn't stop, uh, for the rest of the deployment. So in September, or no, excuse me, August, it was August. September was the big battle. August was, uh, presidential elections yeah. and we needed to help guard the polling sites, uh, so that the Afghan people could vote for the president that they wanted. And we infiltrated in night, uh, or at nighttime, um, like three days prior to the elections yeah. onto this mountain. We, we could not move for three days. We had to completely hold our position, not give it away. If you needed to piss or shit, you rolled over and did it. Uh, yeah. We put claymores around us. There were just eight of us. Eight of us walked up this fucking mountain. We brought more ammo than food and water because we thought that we were going to take heavy contact um, the entire time. And we figured we would just get food and water, you know, airballed into us yeah. or speed, speedballed into us. And, uh, and for the first day, it was like a pot shot or two. The second day, we took like an RPG, but it wasn't like anything crazy. I yeah. really claimed that as contact. Uh, the, like the RPG landed like 20, 20 meters away or something. Um, and But then the third day, the day of the elections, and the whole valley was was on fire. Uh, there was an infantry unit in contact with the enemy across the across the river that we were kind of watching. And I want to say like mid-day, mid, uh, the enemy had these Russian made B 10 rockets. So essentially like a mortar on a recoilless rifle that could shoot a rocket straight at you. And, uh, they started to walk them in on us and they walked them in from like 30, you know, 50 meters to 30 to 20. And there was like, there was four that they had shot. The fourth one looked like it landed right on top of our machine gun position up North. And I'm in the center with the first Sergeant and me being the medic. I thought, I thought my boy Patsky and Sergeant Michigan, I thought that they had gotten killed. So I kind of gave our position away and I got up and ran to them, flipped them over and you know, a little bit of blood on them, but they were fine. Yeah. And uh, I, I tried getting them up, but I, I, you know, they're unconscious dead weight. I just couldn't get them up. And I was waiting for that fifth fucking rocket to land right on top of us. Yeah. And, 
And I, you know, I remember distinctly the, the uh, Apache helicopters coming into the battle space. They were just flying to Jalalabad to go refuel. And it looked like the fucking hands of God because they <laughs> broke the cloud coverage. Yeah. And they both came in the valley and the captain we were with just got on their frequency and told them to bank left. And they didn't question shit. They just banked left and they saw where the smoke plume was coming from. And they just started doing repeated gun Straight runs in. and how, saved us from that last how rocket. Good, how good is fast air and, you know, oh, um, yeah. It's so it's, many of us would be dead without them. It's honestly just like being those, you know, the the angels from above, mate. Like they'll save anything, which is which is incredible. I guess that's one of the best things about Afghanistan. You know, you had that air support. Um, yeah. You know, majority of the times, but you know, there were a lot of times where there was no air support. But um, yeah. let's get into this uh, this next big contact, the big one, yeah. September. Yeah. So <clears throat> the uh, this is like less than thirty days before Cop Keating was overran. The same enemy fighters that would go on to overrun. Cop Keating and the outpost, um, they were using us as target practice, essentially. And the cavalry unit that we were attached to, um, they got sent up a mountain in Saw Valley. Saw Valley was a very well-known place back then that Bin Laden would, yeah. you know, he was still alive then, he would work out of. And it was a very kinetic area. And uh, and they received multiple WIAs, and they were cut off up this mountain. That was all we were really told. And so when we showed up, there was this infantry first sergeant and he was asking for volunteers. And, uh, and I saw my 14 leaders, Sergeant Keo, Corpus Sisto, Sergeant Lee and Sergeant Michigan. Uh, they all volunteered. And then there was the infantry first sergeant, uh, the cavalry platoon sergeant, uh, an interpreter and a squad leader. So um, the eight of, well, plus the turp, the nine of us, I volunteered then to go up there and, uh, I was going to go grab my aid bag. And the first sergeant said, you know, don't worry about it. They just radioed in there. So they're 200 meters up this hill. Um, it's going to be a quick snatch and grab. <laughs> so I just followed them up the mountain and 50 feet onto the mountain were pinned down by a sniper on the opposite side. Yeah, right. And so now we have snipers on two sides. And, uh, and so we, we just started running and zigzag up the mountain. When we got up to about the 200 meter mark, we radioed up to them and the radio static wasn't as bad. And we could hear them a little bit more clear. And we asked them like, you know, where are you guys? And they said, uh, you know, we're at the two, we, we told them we we're at the 200 meter mark. And they said negative. We said two zero 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 is 2000 meters. Yeah. <laughs> we had no water, no food, no medical equipment. So I was like, wow. we couldn't go back, you know? Yeah, so, of course. so we, uh, we just kept pushing and we got up to about halfway up the mountain into these, uh, Terrence cornfields and into the third cornfield, we got a call on the radio that we had, uh, a WIA that turned into a hero, which is an American that's been killed in action. Yep. And I asked the platoon sergeant, you know, who got killed just because as the medic, I'm trying to put a picture in my head of how I'm going to triage everybody and, and figure out how many yeah. wounded I have and dead I have and stuff like that. And he said it was, you know, RLT, Lieutenant Barton. And before I could like say, I'm sorry, or give him any type of remorse, he reached into his vest and he had a, a water bottle that was a quarter of the way filled. And he gave it to me because he could see I had chapped lips and cotton mouth. And um, he gave me you know, is, is water. And I, I didn't understand cause that was the first time I'd seen true leadership. Um, you yeah. know, where, you know, his, his partner, his battle buddy was just killed and more of his soldiers were wounded up this hill and we were being shot at from two sides and we had no supplies. And the first act as a, as a leader was to take care of my well being. Yeah. And I didn't understand how somebody had that type of mental fortitude. And so, you know, a, a few minutes had passed and they decided we were going to keep pushing up these Terrences. And I got up I crawled this tree after Corporal Sisto and First Sergeant. I got up over the ledge. They pulled me over. And I remember the first thing I saw was Corporal Sisto, and he was telling me to be quiet. 
And first sergeant rolled onto his side. He's turning his radio down real low. And he's asking the guys that we're trying to get to, do you have anyone in around these cornfields? And they're like, no, we're way above those things. And on cue, we could hear the corn stalks start to crack and people were walking on them. So we pulled our frag grenades out and we fragged the cornfield and about 30 feet, uh, 30 meters in front of us, there was a Vietnam style hole in the ground and three enemy fighters coming out of the hole. And so we had an enemy now trying to infiltrate in between our lines. Yeah. And, uh, and we made our way up to like this last piece of cover and concealment that we had, which is like this little donkey trail, a donkey show over it. And we're sitting there and we're they're trying to formulate the plan, uh, to paint you a picture. You know how, like when you come up a mountain, then it goes flat and then it goes up again. Yeah, 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 we yeah. were kind of like on that flat yep. part, get shot back up. And where we were at, we had about a 200 meter stretch of open ground. It, it had little jagged edges and boulders and, and vegetation, but not anything big that we could use as cover and concealment. And we essentially had to cross this 200 meter open terrain to get to Lieutenant Parton's body. And the two squads were pinned down against the wall of this draw. Um, and what we thought was one sniper up the middle, and he could essentially look down at this yeah. draw and he had a shot at everyone. <clears throat> what we didn't know is we thought it was one sniper. What we didn't know was it was a Czechoslovakian um, hired sniper by the Taliban. He traveled with two additional snipers that would watch his flanks in a squad size element that would maneuver for him. Yeah. And we were walking into all that, whereas yeah. we thought it was just one singular sniper. And uh, we were trying to figure out how we're going to get to him. So we figured we need to drop a smoke mission, um, but we, we were going to use white phosphorus because it burns a lot. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Longer and stuff, yeah. you know? And so while well, my leaders are trying to drop this ordinance and I felt useless, I'm the only private, the rest of them are all NCOs. And, um, I felt very useless and I figured, well, I'm there to be a medic. I don't have an aid bag. What can I do? So I told them to drop all of their, um, to drop all their first aid pouch stuff. And so people were sacrificing their self aid gear. So yeah. I could be a walking aid bag essentially. Yeah, right. And so I triaged all the equipment, the tourniquets in one pocket, Israeli dressings in the other. And, um, you know, I told them if I go down for any reason, take it off my body, use yeah. it whoever needs it. And once the smoke landed, we just ran out in the open and, and the snipers knew what we were doing. They were trying to shoot through the smoke to get a lucky shot. And we jumped from edge to edge. And um, I ran about 150 meters out and I ran into this Afghan army soldier who was shot through and through the calf where he took a huge piece of shrapnel because his femur bone was poking my leg. <laughs> and so I had to realign his bone and, and tourniquet off and pack it, pack it full of gauze. And I'm working on him and he's begging for water. And, uh, then we started hearing the Kiowa helicopters overhead and yeah. they were um, doing gun runs on the other side of these draws. And we didn't know, but the Taliban were trying to engulf us yeah. and they were trying to surround us into this draw so that the rescue team would need a rescue team. And luckily we had the air support. <coughs> and uh, so I'm working on this dude and they brought LT's body over. And before I could actually go look at LT, I saw these bloody hands come up over onto this boulder in my left. Yeah. I swung around and it was, uh, it was sort of rust. And Russ, I saw this long blood trail for like 80 meters, and he had dragged himself. And I didn't know this at the time, but him and LT were standing out in the open before they took contact. And LT got shot in the ribs first, went down. Russ tried grabbing him, got shot through and through the kneecap, went down. The medic tried running out to grab LT, shot LT in the forehead. Yeah. Medic had to retreat. <clears throat> and then Russ got shot in the leg and again, and then couldn't move and they're in the open. And so um, L, uh, he had to turn LT's body into him yep. and use him as a human meat shield. Um, and the sniper was just pinging LT's body, trying to get Russ. 
and he had to lay there with his dead body for about an hour. Um, and then, so he had dragged himself all that way and he was a bigger dude and I saw where the major bleeding was coming from. So I flipped him over and I, I put my knee under his femoral and I started tightening his tourniquet. But when I did, I could hear him like choking or like gargling on blood. And I looked at his face for the first time. He had gotten shot in the mouth and it ripped off his lower part of his jaw and his lip and his tongue was cut in half a little bit. And then it was going to the back of his throat and he was suffocating. So I had to grab his tongue and pull off to the side so that, you know, he could breathe. Yeah. Um, And I'm trying to get him up, but because of my smaller stature, I'm putting him in more pain. So Sergeant Keel and, and Corporal Sisto saw that and they came over and grabbed him from me and then I had to grab LT's body and you're trying to be as respectful as you could in a moment like that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it was very gruesome because his head was concaved and, and it was trying not to hit on all these rocks that I was dragging him in, yeah. but the smoke was starting to clear behind us. Um, so, you know, I, I used every piece of adrenaline, got him back to the, uh, the, the donkey trail where I started to have a lot of doubt in my mind, you know, that there was no way we were going to get out of this without paying a bigger price. And my leaders were just formulating the next plan and they were redistributing gear and ammo and all that stuff. And so I took on six M4s, uh, additional rifles. Um, we got split up into three teams. Uh, the first sergeant, myself, the interpreter, Sergeant Lee, and uh, the, one of the squad leaders were going to be the recon element. We we're going to yeah. find a way down the mountain because the way we had come up was too treacherous for the wounded to get down. Um, and so now we had to find a way down the mountain. We had never been in the dark. The middle group would consist of the Afghan soldiers because the language barrier, we just told them to follow us. And the last group had all the other wounded in LT's body, which we knew they were going to make slower progress. And for the most part, it was quiet um, about halfway down the mountain. Uh, we weren't getting shot at anymore until yep. this Afghan soldier turned his white flashlight on because he was getting impatient. Uh-huh. And because uh, <clears throat> it was slow progress. I mean, our night vision goggles weren't working. Um, a lot of the time we were taking rocks and we were kicking them off of ledges and we would listen to see how long it took to fall. And if it was 10 feet or 30 feet, and if it was 10 feet or less, that's the way we were going to fall. And we yep. could just fall off that ledge into the next one. Uh, Cause there were no, there's no, it's not like the Colorado mountains. There's no built in trails. Exactly. System, yeah. You know, like yeah. no one's hiking there for yeah. fun. So there's a lot, it's very, very rough terrain. And so when this guy turned his flashlight on first, I told me to go tell him to turn off. I turned around, I got like two steps in and all of Saw Village just lit us up. Just lit up and I collapsed to the ground. I slid down this embankment along this rock wall and I had first sergeant to my legs. I had Sergeant Lee above me. The interpreter tried running over us. He gets shot in the shoulder and collapses on me. Uh, I started working on him. Uh, and then I laid there for some time just watching enemy tracers come overhead. And I, at this point I was reaching heat exhaustion <coughs> and, um, and I, and I was getting ready to black out. I remember the sound and sight was going away. And yep. the last thing I heard was first sergeant yelling into the radio, broken arrow, um, which broken arrow is just an old Vietnam era term that uh, a unit that's on the, on the verge of being overwhelmed or overran and that we needed all air assets to come to our location. Yep. Um, and so then I blacked out and that was the last thing I heard. And I don't know how much time had passed, but um, when I woke up, I saw a C-130 Spectre gunship yeah. raining onto the mountain. Uh, we had F-16s coming in for show of force runs. Uh, Apaches were doing Hellfire rockets along the opposite embankment. Uh, and then uh, I just saw this arsenal of American firepower yeah. above yeah. my head uh, and because every pilot that wasn't engaged in Afghanistan had to come to our location. And um, and I remember my, feeling like my body was being pelted by rocks and uh, – I look above me, like straight above me when I'm laying on the ground, and there's like this silhouette, a uh, very dark silhouette above me. 
<coughs> and I realized it was the pilot for one of the Kiowa helicopters. And he essentially, the pilot was sacrificing himself and he brought himself down to gun level yep. and was taking the, the brunt force of the enemy fire coming in away from us. Wow. And he was taking it into his armor and I was feeling his brass fall onto our bodies uh, from his gun. So that's yeah. what woke me up. And I looked up to my left and the Afghan soldier using that flashlight came over the ledge. He stopped, uh, looked up, took two bullets to the face, collapsed. Uh, and, and I tried grabbing him, but his leg was stuck between these two boulders. So I was yelling to the Afghans. They needed to grab him. And uh, and first, our, you know, he was like, this this position's done. You need to get off this mountain. He gave me all of his chem lights and said, you're in charge. Mark the way down the mountain. I'm going to go link up with the guys up top. And uh, he ran up and I grabbed his chem lights and I uh, started popping them. And, and uh, I, I looked up to my right towards Saw Village and this huge red ball coming at me. Yep. And it was a, the, one of the B-10 rockets landed on the other side of the rock wall and peppered shrapnel everywhere. And that's where I got hit in the shoulder. Yep. Uh, and I slid down this embankment. Sergeant Lee followed, kicked this rock wall, and it collapsed. Uh, it came down to my already wounded shoulder and dislocated it. And uh, and I, I couldn't move. Uh, it was too painful. So I'm, I'm walking Sergeant Lee on how to put my shoulder back into place. But with my gear, my M4s, it, there just wasn't a lot of room to properly medically yeah. do it. And so he had to take the buttstock of his rifle and slam it into my shoulder about four or five <laughs> times. Hell. It fucking sucked, yeah. <laughs> and he's doing this all under fire. And uh, – <clears throat> And we were walking um, after, you know, after I got up, trying to find a path. And the F-16s came in and dropped two 500-pound bombs, which was cool. But it illuminated the entire area and yeah. saw a village, saw me and Lee crossing this open terrain. So they started to open fire. And I, and I dodged in between these two boulders. And Lee fell off the mountain to the left. And I, and I didn't see him again for the rest of the night. And so I was uh, essentially by myself, fucking 19-year-old kid. Fuck. And by, my, by myself. There's no Americans. There's no Afghans. I don't know where I'm at. I just know where the road is kind of yeah. just go down. You're going to run into the road. And so I'm marking the way and I finally find Lee at the bottom and, uh, and he was fine. And I let my squad leader know I was there for accountability. And, uh, and then I go to the front of the convoy and I see my boy Patsky and uh, he's asking if I'm okay and stuff like that. And I look and there's an alone American walking all by himself about 150 meters in front of our convoy walking towards us. And you could tell it was American based off his gear. Yeah. His chin strap was undone. His vest was open and he was dragging his rifle in the dirt. And uh, he came over and it was Corporal Sisto and he collapsed and I'm blood sweeping him. I'm making sure he's not shot and he seemed fine. Um, and, you know, he didn't want to talk to us. And it was days later I found out that during the initial barrage, he had fallen off to the left off this cliff and couldn't get back up to us. He was by himself the entire night and he heard wow. these dudes uh, speaking Pashto and he thought it was the Afghan army soldiers, but they weren't wearing uniforms. And so he had to ditch his gear for most of the night and uh, hide between a rock pile as he watched the Taliban just walk by him the whole night. Holy so, um, shit. That yeah, story we were able to get everyone off the mountain and to the aid station after that. Wow. So how many guys were w- wounded in action throughout that whole and KIA as well? Just that uh, LT was the only one killed. Um, yep. I want to say we had uh, to maybe four WAs, including myself. Yeah. <coughs> so, so you you got yeah. the purple heart through that, and in regards yeah. to obviously, I read through. You know that story is just incredible, mate. That's obviously all through your book as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Um, the bronze star, and you've got that twice. Yeah. So I got a. Um, I received a bronze star with valor um, and purple heart for that first one. Yep. And then I. And then I. Um, that was only what five months, four months into the deployment of uh, the 12 month deployment. Yeah. 
and then, uh, and then we got back in 2010. And then, uh, and then eight months later, I volunteered. I wanted to go back to Afghanistan with a sister company that was yeah. going. Yep. So then I went back as a sergeant where I, you know, we partook in some, some major battles there. My second. So, you know, you do two full deployments to Afghanistan and they're, they're, they're full deployments, like hectic, like full on. Yeah. That's, yeah. uh, that's incredible, mate. Yeah, well, the second deployment was pretty, it was just like the first, it was pretty quiet at the beginning for like the first three months. And then they moved us up deeper into the mountains. And we partook in a, a major operation that we were going to take back area that Americans had never been in before yep. for the past year. Um, and it was a setup. The Taliban knew we were coming. And it was a, it was, a, it was the, it was probably the biggest battle I fought in. Yeah. A little bit bigger than the last one. Yeah. So. It's, it's funny how people think that the Taliban, you know, before you go over, you think the Taliban are just stupid and they can't shoot for shit. Yeah. You, no. You get there and you know, they say that they're not accurate. They're, their rockets aren't accurate. I can tell you, yeah, they're accurate. They can, they can yeah, shoot, uh, and they're smart. Their tactics, you know, they've done it for the last, you know, forever, forever, forever since Alexander the Great strolled through there. You know, they know yeah. how to fight, which is, yeah. uh, you know, crazy. But you know, I can only imagine some of the stories you've got. You know, further and you know, outside of that contact, it's uh, you know, again, being an MP and you're getting into the thick of it, the absolute thick of it. So after your uh, your second deployment, you get back. Um, you're still active duty now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm stationed at Fort Leonard with Missouri right now. Yeah, right. So how long have you been in total now? Uh, it'll be 14 years in February. Yeah, right. 14 years, and you're still loving yeah. it. Yeah, so far it's not. I, <laughs> I enjoy it. It's easy. It's easy money. Yeah, uh, I love what I do. So yeah. And you, you, you kind of at the top of the top of the chain now, so you can you know kick back and yeah. do, do what you want. There's always someone higher. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there is, there is. <laughs> um. Yeah, wow. Like I'm just I'm I'm lost for words, mate. Like it's just again, being an MP, getting into, you know, infantry tactics and doing exactly what you did, and, you know, getting to the full stink of it, which is incredible. Yeah. Um so let's talk about uh, you know, post Afghanistan. You you haven't done any further deployments since? No, just those two. Yeah, right. Yeah. So now you're just back to being an MP dealing with uh Um Well, so I, like I said, I've never wrote a ticket. Um, because those deployments took up the first six years of my career, yeah, you know, training up and coming back and training up and stuff like that. Um, I didn't, uh, and then I worked operations my last year at Carson, my first six years at Carson, um, never worked in a patrol vehicle. Uh, when I, and then I went to Hawaii for three years and yep. <laughs> worked a little bit of a patrol suit, but essentially I just show up on the scene. I'm like, you guys need anything? Okay. Bye. And I just, I, I don't do any paperwork. Um, uh, cause I was a staff sergeant by then. Yep. And, um, we went to the field a lot, trained a lot, um, you know, for deploying. Um, and then I did uh, two years as a platoon sergeant at JBLM where I was just overseeing training and stuff yeah. and yeah. using my experiences, but I didn't still never worked the road, never worked as an MP. And then I've been here now for, it'll be two years in August. Uh, and I'm just an instructor. I teach the senior leaders course. Yeah. So I still don't do MP stuff. So. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that. yeah, that's, that's, that's probably a good thing. That's probably a good yeah. thing. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have any crazy MP stories? Because um, I know that you guys again do do it a lot different. Whereas you're essentially police, you know, as in you go outside, yeah. you know, and deal with um, spouses. You deal with you know domestic violence between you know you know what I mean. Like whereas we don't do that here in Australia. It's left towards you know the state police or the federal police. Not yeah, the we um, there's a lot of gang gang drugs and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of things on post. I mean, <laughs> Hawaii. I saw a lot of child neglect. Yeah, right. There was a there was a, there was a spouse that 
her house was disgusting. There was shit on the walls, trash all over the floors. And uh, she had a glass dildo and a butcher knife in the baby's crib. What the like, fuck? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, you'd find dead babies in Hawaii because you get these people who go to Hawaii and they just want to party and be a tourist and they forget they have obligations of being parents. Wow. And, yeah, it's insane. Um, and then uh, and then I worked on SRT for a little, you know, for uh, for some time. It's like our version of SWAT. Yep. And we actually took down a live felon on the installation um, who, who he actually came onto the base and shot uh, the manager at the Burger King. Wow. And he was hiding out on post. Yep. And so we actually got to take him down. But other than that, I mean, um, a lot of robberies and people stealing equipment from the military. Yeah. A lot of drugs, a lot of drugs. Yeah. Well, it's one thing I did notice, you know, when we did work with the U.S. is that they still have the gangs within the U.S. military, you know, the Bloods and the Crips and and then, yeah. And then obviously the Mexicans, it was just, it was like literally walking into South Central LA. Yeah. You know, like it was was like home for me. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. So um, let's just quickly touch on something else that you told me before you've uh, COVID. Now, You've got COVID. Yeah, uh, today's my last day on recovery, yeah. but I still got a dry cough. Um, and, and as I spoke about, you know, before we got live um, here in Australia, mate, it's one of those rare things. No one knows anyone that's got COVID, and it's crazy. just it's it's crazy. But we've got a couple of active cases now in Sydney, and the the world's going mental here. They go crazy and they make everyone wear masks. How are you feeling? So, you know, what we see of COVID, we um, think you get COVID and you start, you know, it was like China where they start falling over and everyone's dying. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, we've no, got no I, idea. Uh, I, it was, was it 10, 12 days ago I started developing symptoms, um, but I, it felt like more like uh, pneumonia or like a, a deep sinus infection. Yeah. I had like pain behind my eyes. And I had the sniffles, um, the common cold kind of things. Yeah. Um, they gave me some antibiotics and steroids and that stuff kind of went away. The cough is what's been killing me. Just the... Like if I want to take a deep breath right now, yeah, I can't you cough? Yeah. Um, so yeah, just just the coffee has really been kicking my. I still have taste, I still have smell. Yeah, um, just the coffee that's kicking my ass. Yeah, yeah. Man, again, we, we we don't know. Like we we see that's what crazy. we see on the media. Like it's it's literally just been more of a a, a scare tactic here in Australia. We you yeah. know we yeah. It sounds like you've just got the man flu. That's what we call it, the man yeah. flu. It's just the, yeah. no, it's I a, felt a little weak and. I lay, I've been laying in bed the past 10 days. I really, I'll have some energy. I'm like, I got to get out of bed. I'm fucking bored. And then, then sometimes I'm like, I'm dizzy. Like I need to lay down. And yeah, then- <laughs> right. Have they got given you a vaccine yet? No, I actually had it scheduled and then I just happened. To oh yeah, right. Yeah, so, right. but uh, I, I get my back, my first shot on Monday. Yeah, nice. So. <laughs> yeah, again, Are mate. Are like, all vaccinated over there? No, no. Like that's one thing that uh, the US has done, right? They've vaccinated a lot, majority of the population, haven't they? Whereas here yeah. in Australia, mate, we've got the vaccine, but there's only been six million vaccinated out of 25, 25 million. We're, we're useless. Why, like, why our government are useless, mate. They've got like I, I know that you guys in the US are just you know the pharmacies are giving these injections. Anyone's giving the injections just so they can vaccinate. Here in Australia, you got to essentially if you're over fifty right now, you can have it. If you're under fifty, you got to be a frontline worker. You got to be. There's, there's, yeah, they're not even giving it out. I'm, I'm trying to get it because I've got to come to the US in August. So I obviously want to get it, but they've said no. They're like, oh, you got to wait. <laughs> what, do, what do you mean? But yeah, again, mate, wow. we don't, I don't know anyone with COVID. You're the first person I know with COVID. Literally the That's first person, crazy. you know, in a whole year. 
um, which wow. is crazy. But um, yeah, mate. So we've been talking for a good uh, hour, and uh, mate, it's been absolutely incredible. F- you know, for not just for the listeners, but for me to understand, you know, the, the world of an MP, and it's not you know what we all think it is. Um, yeah. You know, our MPs in Australia, they've got a uh, on their beret, their hat badge is uh, there's two two daggers. And we generally say one of those daggers is, you know, for the soldiers they they ping or for their mates, uh, which that that's an MP. And that's the, you know that's what everyone thinks about MPs. Yeah. But you know you've opened the world up to you know what MPs really are, especially in the US. And it's yeah. that's your stories are absolutely hectic. And you know, thanks for your service as well. You know, yeah, for, foremost and you know bronze stars, and you've obviously got the purple heart as well, and uh, you know quite an extensive career. And you're still you're still in, which is uh, admirable. So uh, real, well done. Um, but we've got two final questions. Uh, one question is, you know, what advice can you give to people um, to, you know, succeed in life, uh, complete their goals, you know, never, you know, never quit. You know, you essentially showed that, you know, during that massive battle in September. I mean, I guess it depends on what your profession is, what it is you're trying to do. Like, you know, for military, for example, I have a lot of young soldiers that try to ask me questions like that. And, uh, you know, what saved me both my deployments is just my training. And I asked a lot of questions and you could do that really in any career field is asking a lot of questions, trying to understand, you know, because I, I, I used to ask my, my leaders what Iraq was like. Um, and they used to tell me their stories. And I just knew that when my time came, um, which was going to be ultimately Afghanistan, I would just apply with what they, you know, they did their successes and failures and their endeavors. I applied it to my battlefield uh, because war itself will never change. No. People we shoot at, the terrain, the weather will change, but the effects of it will never change. And um, and you could do that in any career field. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a banker, you're a businessman. You talk to the, the guys who've been there, done that before you, and you apply what what made them successful. Um, and it's just have the open dialogue and human connection to the future and past generations um, to make yourself, I guess, just a smarter person. And then obviously you have, for us, you have to be physically fit. Yeah. You know, I find myself um, dealing with injuries. I mean, just countless. Yeah. Afghanistan fucked me up for life. Like right now I'm dealing with the L5 vertebrae is, uh, is torn and it's poking out and it's touching my spinal nerve right now. And I've been dealing with trying to get into a specialist up North, and and uh, and try to heal myself up because if I don't, they're going to kick me out of the military. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not feeling sorry for yourself. I could I could easily go. Well, I'm fucked up. I'm older now. I put my time in when I was younger. Um, but there's also a younger generation that needs me. Yeah. And so I have to every day wake up and put myself into the gym and try to get better. And yeah. Yeah. And just study my job. Try to be the best professional, whatever it is I'm trying to be. Yeah, mate. That's awesome because you know, as you said before, you know, you've got younger guys under you. You've got the wealth of the experience, um, you know, not only in domestically, but internationally, you know, in war zones. So your advice, you know, passing on down to these younger generations, it's, you, you can't, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's invaluable. Like it's, it's the best information give to people is, and, and to listen, to listen to other, what, you know, what other people got to say. Um, don't yeah. be arrogant and, you know, pass the information on. That's yeah. awesome. Um, and second question, mate, you know, what is the plans for the future? You uh, staying in, you, you've got plans to get out. I know you're married. I think I've heard on um, another podcast. Yeah. Uh, so right now, I, I mean, last year I signed my indefinite contract, so I have to stay in for the full 20. Yep. So I have another six and a half fish years. If I make our major, then I probably have to do like 23, 25 years. Yeah. But 
Yeah, we'll see. And then I, what I'm going to do after that, I have no clue because this is all I know. Yeah. Well, you after your 20 years, you get your um, your pension anyway, don't I, you? Yeah. 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 They stopped that in Australia. They stopped that um, before. Really? I, yeah. Early, early, late 90s, they stopped it, which is quite weird because wow. I would have stayed in for 20 years and, you know, get your pension on the way out, but they stopped it. Yeah. I don't know why. It's a government thing. Wow. Who, who knows why? But um, yeah, right. So you're just going to stay in and- uh, Get fitter, get stronger, and get ready for the next uh, next deployment, next maybe. War. Yeah, <laughs> Korea. It'll come at some point. Somebody uh, will talk to it. Yeah, yeah, it'll be Iran or Korea. That'll be yeah. the places. Um, otherwise, you know, if there is a war, maybe maybe Australia. Then you can come to Australia. Come hang yeah, out. No, I've always wanted to come to Australia. Yeah, yeah. man, it's a crazy. Place. <laughs> There's a lot of other things that'll kill you here, not just yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, not not just criminals. Um, so uh, just for the listeners, you know. Uh, if they wanted to reach out to you, where can they get you? And, you know, t- tell us a bit, a little bit about your book as well. Um, yeah. So if they want to get a hold of me, uh, Facebook, just my name, Sean Tobias Ambrose. Uh, Instagram is uh, chief underscore pink mist. Pink mist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the, my website is just Sean Tobias Yep. Uh, so they can find me in any of those social media websites and stuff. Yeah. As far as the book, uh, the book, you know, kind of follows the two main, main battles. I know we didn't talk about the second one, but, it follows that first one, you know, coming back home, volunteering to go back. It talks about the second big battle, which, um, you know, like I said, we didn't talk about, but essentially it was 16 of us that were completely surrounded by uh, 170-ish enemy fighters. Yeah, and right. They got within eight, eight feet of our trucks, and yep. we were using hand grenades to keep them back and stuff. So yeah. it's a pretty intense battle. And then talks about the aftermath, the dealing with everything. Yeah, nice. Um, it's, only t- it's only 10 chapters. The 10th chapter is like a resource chapter websites and stuff to help veterans. Yep. And then, um, yeah. And, and hopefully it just, it'll help, it help others cope with any type of trauma um, that they've been through. And so they could find the book, uh, on Amazon, Nook, Kindle, Audible. Um, so it's on all those major platforms. Yeah, gotcha. Mate, that, that's awesome too. You know, it's out there to, you know, support veterans. And that's the reason why we did this podcast was to, you know, put the word out from other veterans that, you know, have been through, you know, tough times. And uh, hopefully, because, you know, I'm sure with you guys in the US, here in Australia, mate, we've, we're have we going through this, you know, uh, high suicide rate within veterans. Yeah. And, you know, at this stage, it's, you know, for us, you know, we're quite a small military, but we're still having about one, you know, one suicide a week, you know, either current serving or, you know, veteran. Yeah. Again, that's the reason why we put this podcast out was to try and give people that little bit of motivation, you know, to keep on keeping on, you know, speak to absolute legends like yourself. You know, we've had some crazy guests on in the past as well with incredible stories and it shows that, you know, you're a real person and you're going through those, uh, you know, tough times as well. Um, so it's admirable, mate. And, you know, your book, um, I'm starting to get through it now, which is good. And uh, I didn't want to touch on that second uh, that um, contact because I want to leave that for people to, you know, get out and get your book and read yeah, through yeah. that story. So, um, mate, again, appreciate you uh, giving me your time. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can catch up one day and have a beer. Shit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, too sure. easy, man. No, thanks for your time again. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Hi, bro. All right, guys. Uh, podcast done with uh, Sean M. Breeze, uh, military police in the US, uh, better known as an MP. Uh, it's opened my eyes to how different uh, MPs are around the world. And as we know here in Australia, for some of our listeners, the MPs here suck. And, uh, you know, during my service, I dealt with them uh, a couple of times. And we won't touch on those. Yeah. Wow. Like just 
the extent of, you know, the MPs in the US and how they were, were re-rolled into infantry when deploying, you know, into active war zones such as Iraq and, you know, more with Afghanistan as Sean uh, talked about, you know, how, you know, this first, you know, this first large contact he got into, the extent of it, you know, with the KIA and, you know, the wounded in action as well. And just what they dealt with through that contact was just incredible. I, I you know, I, I expected the infantry to obviously get into such, you know, crazy, hectic uh, contacts with the Taliban, but not uh, the military police. And then, you know, he talks about how he talks about the Bronze Star, you know, with Valor and, uh, you know, for that contact. And he also got the Purple Heart. And then he goes, uh, redeploys again, you know, a year later back to Afghanistan and receives another Bronze Star for, you know, the second big contact he talks about in his book. If you want to get in contact with Sean and uh, say good day, just jump onto uh, the social media, Facebook, uh, Instagram, find him at Sean Ambrose. Otherwise, you can uh, like myself. You know, I've started reading his book, Ghosts of the Valley. If you want to check that book out, you know, obviously jump online, uh, do a Google search. Otherwise, head to uh, Amazon and Kindle, as he explained, and uh, check out the book, buy it. And, you know, it also supports, you know, veterans uh, throughout the US as well. So he's doing a, a very good job and he's still actively serving, which is uh, incredible too. So thanks for his service. For us, if you want to follow uh, Zero Limits Podcast, jump onto um, our social medias, uh, Facebook and Instagram, find us at Zero Limits Podcast. Uh, on there, you'll find uh, you know our previous episodes and uh, upcoming episodes. And also you can do a search on uh, Spotify Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and, you know, all the other platforms, uh, Zero Limits Podcast, and you'll find all these podcasts and our previous uh, podcast with all the crazy guests we've had on. And it's been an absolute journey so far, and we're keen to keep bringing this uh, content out to you guys and hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, you've got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it. Get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.